welcome everyone to uh, what I believe is the fifth episode of Britonology. Yeah, uh, that's the one. The offshoot of Trash Future, where we talk about the neuroses of the great island of Britain. Mm-hmm. So great, they literally put it in the name. Um, I, had a, I had a fucking terrible morning. <laughs> <laughs> like, but wait, this comes out like wildly asynchronously. So by the time anyone actually listens to this, you'll have had probably dozens of other mornings. Yeah. Terrible and great. Many of which may have been worse, if yeah. anything, the way things are going. Yeah. Um, in, in, in this economy. Yeah, exactly. In the, exactly. That's fucking right. Um, I mean, you know, I just, I just wanted the listeners to know, uh, you know, the state of mind that I'm recording this in. I've hurt, I've hurt my knee. My ex-girlfriend is texting me. Uh, uh-huh. my, my running headphones are broken. It's, uh-huh. a, it's, a bad, it's a bad morning, but we're here and we're going to talk about Britain. <laughs> It's very appropriate energy. What, what better mindset could you be in than just kind of hurting, full of some non-specific sort of resentments that, again, you don't really feel like you ought to have, but you do anyway, Yeah, and so on and so on. What better mindset than that than to talk about Britain? Exactly. It's the sort of mindset in which you might erect a giant flagpole in your back garden to make a point you know, to your neighbors who you suspect might read The Guardian. There was something going on not that long ago. I bought a garden shed. I'm still waiting on it to get delivered. And somebody was in on Twitter. We were talking about the various psychoses you encounter on British Twitter from boomer dads and such and, and, and Gen X mm. dads. And somebody was doing some you know, transphobic freak out. And I quote tweeted him. And the, uh, somebody responded to me like, Jesus, this guy should just get a normal hobby like having a shed. And I felt this utter just stab of fear and pain <laughs> in my heart. Because I am becoming a British shed guy, even mm. though I'm not from this country are you gonna go like based anglo vibes and build a huge train set in your shed oh the shed's not that big sadly it's more like a big it's like a big wall locker for the army heads out there uh Mm. but that being said i am going to have a shed before too long in my uh in my yard and uh i'm excited because next thing i know i'm just gonna buy a i don't know a voxel or something like that and just (laughs) just 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 trick it out (laughs) insanely i'm gonna Code it in terrible <laughs> off-brand anime graphics. It's going to be amazing. Oh, yeah, I, 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 one of my favorite parts of this show is Nate sort of groping around in the dark for a British stereotype. <laughs> guess I'll buy a Vauxhall. Yeah. I mean, guess I'll buy a Vauxhall Zephira and wow. then st- and then drive around my home in Chipping Norton. To be fair, Vauxhall Zephira is such a powerful British dad energy. Yeah. Like, you have kids who you hate that are between the ages of 5 and 12. Oh, yeah, the show Outnumbered is the official show of the Vauxhall Zephira. Mm. I was thinking, actually, in the grand scheme of things, the Ford Escort Cosworth is a badass car, and I would actually be okay with buying one, except it's so ridiculous to buy a car that old and shitty at this point. But also, to me, when I think of, like, the Vauxhall as dadmobile versus Skoda, which is ladmobile in its own right. Oh, damn. Well, it depends what model of Skoda you're talking here. I've seen some barely street legal Skodas here in White, Ca- in White Castle. <laughs> in White Castle with a CCTV everywhere. Actually, White Castle is a very British vibe in America. It's a harshly lit restaurant with CCTV everywhere that feeds you slop and people claim to love it for some reason. Yeah, it's called the Trash Future Podcast. That's right. That is fucking right. Um, but this is not the Trash Future podcast, is it? No, this is... Well, I mean, is it or isn't it? That's an interesting question of ontology, well, I mean, really. That's the thing, right? Is that, Riley, you could be introduced as a guest on this show. I am a guest. And, yeah. we, and, and, and you don't, you don't, Hussein got a little bit <laughs> weird about it. I'm technically a guest and you fail to control me. Read the small prints on your contract. There it and is. Shades of a Britonology episode to come. 
Um, yeah, well, anyway, this is this is Britonology. Uh, I'm I am Milo Evans. I'm as always joined by my co-host Nate Bethay. Hello, it's me experiencing Britain through fresh and new eyes, and just excited for the jellied eels and slop. Awful, to come. exactly. Awful, awful, awful. awful. A, I, I a real eels. bad food. I love eels. I hate jellied eels. You I've love eels had, in the Kurt Eichenwald sense. I've never had jellied eels, but I, I like <laughs> oh, on I Japanese like food. It's not true. Japanese food. They do a great job with eels. Eels are great. Eel sashimi, awesome. Like I'm, I'm down for eel, whatever. Why but make it I, in Jello? But when I saw jellied eels, when I actually saw what a bowl of jellied eels looked like, I was just like, this makes the slop from the breakfast scene on the spaceship in the Matrix look normal. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not a food you you would eat. I think the only people who eat jelly deals are doing it to make some sort of point. I mean, uh, so people were t- complaining about that Canadian sandwich about uh, the chicken sandwich with like gravy and peas on top. That's a good sandwich. And it's got to like, be from Quebec, surely. Yeah, oh no, it's from everywhere. Really? Oh. Yeah, it's a nor- I used to have those all the time. It's a good sandwich. But anyway, I saw. I was like, okay, <laughs> the you Prince guys, Edward Island classic. <laughs> you want you want to be snotty and uptight about that sandwich? Like, I guarantee you, if I just go into the Google listings, like in Google Maps for restaurants within a mile radius of where I live, and look in some of the food and drink photos that people have published of the food served in this restaurant, I can find something ten times more disgusting than any joke you might make about a Canadian sloppy sandwich. Yeah. And, and you also sure found enough, some pictures of Dave Courtney having a sword fight, which was <laughs> or Dave Courtney hiding in his front garden, aiming a gun at the Google Maps car. <laughs> which is absolutely a thing he did. A gun which yeah. has a big speech bubble pointing to it saying, this is illegal. I do not have a permit for this weapon. <laughs> I had a permit for this weapon, but I've allowed it to lapse. <laughs> Legit- Come get me, copper. Legitimately, if you go on Google Street View and you look up Dave Courtney's house, which is Camelot Castle in Plumstead, which I think is technically in Kent, but I don't know, maybe it's in Lewisham. Mm. Uh, he... He is literally either he or someone in his employ is standing near the garden, the front garden gate, wearing what I can only describe as like a large Wild West hat and pointing yeah. a gun at the Google Maps. They're car. kind of in like a bit of an Al Capone costume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be it could be uh, like a big fedora, but it's like a strikingly large fedora, almost a highwayman hat. But mm. long story short, uh, I found some disgusting slop food within a one mile radius of my home. I found. A really burned omelet served with French fries and baked beans for some reason. I found pie mash and eels at Man's uh, Pie and Eel House yeah. or whatever, which is right down the street from me. And the pie looked good. The gravy looked okay. The mash looked fine. The eels looked like... The best way to describe it was as if they gave you the novelty option of... Uh, having a 1900s Victorian era military ration that that guy on YouTube eats thrown oh, yes. in with your normal meal. And yet, that apparently is a cockney delicacy that people care a lot about. The jelly deals just ain't been the same since they all started doing cocaine. <laughs> it's spoiled the flavour. It so tastes all Peruvian now. Nah? So anyway, uh, we're going to talk about some British stuff. Yeah. Uh, to include slop food, perhaps. Perhaps. But- and the Maybe. real the real heads might have noticed. I mean, I, I hesitate to say real heads. Heads of this podcast of any kind might have noticed that we're joined by Riley Quinn. Hi, what's up? Yeah. Yes, it's me. I'm, I'm happy to be here on Britainology. Happy to be a guest on your own show. Yeah. How the tables have turned. <laughs> now Milo has a script he's trying to stick to, and you can just fucking distract the shit out of him. It's a very, it's a very skeleton script. I will, I will be doing my best uh, not, not to stick to it. Um, but uh, So this week, we are talking about the, the greatest British archetype of all, the legend. It's a very of a time archetype as well, right? Mm. This is. I think it's it shifts through the decades. What you're saying is like the the British legend is kind of like a 
It's it's like a like a Jungian archetype that it exists it, deep in the psyche of every British person mm. is is a legend who's just waiting to absolutely go f- mental. When I was yeah. a kid, there was a uh, British family that moved to my hometown. Uh, they were from Coventry. And the dad wore a platinum chain and was a Thai bow instructor and kind of looked like Tim Westwood. And in the grand scheme of things, I now understand who that guy was and who he was trying to be just because of the stuff Milo's made me watch for this episode. I didn't get it at the time, but I understand now why uh, I think the kid's name was Oliver. I can't remember why he was affecting this sort of like hard man in track pants approach to life. And now I get it. I didn't get it before, but I get it. The legend is perennial. Being being any kind of niche martial arts instructor is such a powerful energy that I feel like it almost. But it's not just martial arts. Billy Blanks' Tai Bo. If you know what that is, it's so fucking mm. bad. This dude taught Tai Bo classes. Yeah, I mean, it's the the other thing about the British legend is that the way the legend is portrayed in media is that they would get their ass kicked by someone doing Tai Bo. Mm. Yeah, unless. Well, unless they knew a different direct to VHS martial art. No, no, the, the legend. The legend as he is portrayed in British media always is portrayed as an Alazon. He's always made to look foolish. Mm. Because the, the, way that the, the way that it works, right, is that someone like, someone, especially in that, if, for example, in the, show, in the show like Phone Shop, for example, mm. like they're, they're presented to look ridiculous. They're not actually yeah. enviable characters. Or like... Well, um, it depends, it depends yeah. on the show, right? Because I think Phone Shop is like a, a satire show, which we'll, which we'll get to in a minute. But yeah, if you look at something... I guess I'm familiar with the legend as a satirical category of the, um, of kind of like a, like a, like a, like a street Alan Partridge. Ah, no, it's, it's all too, it's all too real. It's like, say, uh, for them, for them, it's an entirely serious uh, matter. I was going to say, Milo, having grown up in Essex, I imagine can speak to the aspirational quality of being a legend, mm. because I do think that uh, in some ways, Riley, you are reflecting on it as someone who doesn't live in legend country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I, I wrote, I wrote a, a short text for the top of this episode, which I feel kind of sums it up, mm-hmm. uh, which is that, you know, if we're talking about like defining cultural archetypes, America has the suburban dad, Russia has the staircase alcoholic, and Britain has the legend. And the men of Great Britain are so shaped by their relationship with being a legend that the concept is quite hard to define. It comprises something more than just a spectrum of behavior. It is, in essence, a lifestyle. Much like the American dream, the legend lifestyle has its own kind of like cultural accoutrements. Like, it's about owning the newest phone, a number of Ralph Lauren polo shirts, an ice white BMW M3, and dating a girl who is considered a proper stunner on the social scene of a suburban town. And the other, the other way to be a legend is through actions so outlandish that they sort of take on a life of their own in the kind of oral tradition of an exceptionally boring group of people who all work in IT in a place like Kettering. Like, remember the time Davy jumped through a bus stop window. Like, that kind of... That guy is a legend. Mm. Weirdly, when you were explaining, like, the epistemology of being a legend, your voice kind of trailed towards Partridge territory. It did go hard, Partridge. <laughs> Was that intentional? Well, think about being a legend. Okay. And now, a proper legend, it's Dave Clifton. Yeah. Who, who invented the skip? My dream is basically just to have Alan Partridge's radio show. Like what? Which is basically to be Jeremy Vine. Now that I think about it, like what could be what could be better than just having a radio show where you come up with absurd phone-in topics and then people phone in and take them completely seriously? Like, what is the loudest appliance in your house? 
And then you've got two people arguing whether someone's Hoover or someone's lawnmower is louder, and you mm-hmm. just sit back and watch the clock tick down. I was just, yeah. I was just thinking about this. This is completely non sequitur, but years ago, I remember seeing someone linked to this. The, the NH, maybe it was the NHS, maybe it was some sexual health charity, I don't know, had put together a video series about sexual health topics, and one of them was whether or not squirting was a thing, like whether squirting was real. Oh, and wow. They were doing Vox Pop interviews with people on the street about squirting, which is- Have a, you ever squirted? And legitimately like that. Oh, you're a cheeky cunt for a survey <laughs> interviewer. And they were, they were talking about it. And there was this guy who just, to me, struck me as sort of like, you know, a former legend now, just kind of like the- you know how in basically anywhere in, in let's say zone two London you can encounter the guy who's just sort of like London grizzled, probably partied and took E way too much in his twenties and now is just sort of like not quite a tracksuit dad, but getting there. You know what I'm talking about? Like he you know, he, he, he <laughs> Look, if you're gonna talk about Tom Usher on the show, just <laughs> No, it's not it's not it's not imagine 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 Tom Usher when he's like a dad and has a steady job, but mm. is also just like he's still got that past legendary status and Tom the is guy, all to play for and the guy the guy someone asked at the uh, the final question of this guy was like do you think if, if squirting is healthy do you think it's a good thing he's like yeah don't see why not i'll just say carry on squirting ladies <laughs> <laughs> and that's ladies. burned into my fucking brain and that's 10 and that, years on and that's a legend thing and exactly to say. that's a thing a legend or a post legend guy would say Post legend, we start getting into like kind of uh, Foucault level examination <laughs> of like the sociology of the legend. Um, so I've kind of, I mean, as ever, because this is an episode being curated by me, the format of the show is quite loose. But I've I've collated some uh, what I consider to be key legend archetypes uh, with uh, appropriate supporting evidence, which I've had uh, Riley and Nate watch. Um, I thought we could start with a kind of an obvious one. Uh, someone I'd like to call the smooth operator geezer. It's a guy who is kind of he he is like what if Dave Courtney sort of had money and like used masculine grooming products. It's this kind of thing where like he he's like a big watch guy. He has big watches and a big car. And he says that, all right, darling, to women he meets in Starbucks. Like that, this guy. I feel like the best example of him is Mark Wright from The Only Way is Essex. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of, I have a lot of things to think about, about Mark, specifically about Mark and Arge. Yes. So I'll, I'll start by just setting up who Mark Wright is for the uninitiated. So this is from his Wikipedia. Uh, Mark Wright is best known for appearing as a cast member on the first three series of The Only Way is Essex. Wright gained further popularity after appearing on the 11th series of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, where he finished as runner-up, and the 12th series of Strictly Come Dancing, where he finished in fourth place. Before his appearances on The Only Way as Essex, Wright was a semi-professional footballer with a youth career at West Ham, Arsenal, and Tottenham Hotspur. He started his senior career with Southend United, but moved into nightclub promoting and played only semi-professionally. In January 2012, it was reported that he rekindled his semi-professional footballing career by signing for St. Neat's Town, but this was denied by Wright on his Twitter account. I would never play for them fucking slags in St. Neas. <laughs> Get it straight. Mm-hmm. Um, I like. There's something. His entire biography is so perfect, like legend material, because he's like, like good enough at football to be like better at football than everyone he knows, but not good enough at football to have made a career out of it. Well, because because le- basically, legend is it speaks to a kind of Brit the the British gr- grappling with neoliberal localism. It's, mm. it's grappling with what does it mean to be a guy who's grown up and lives his entire life in Milton Keynes. Riley, mm. 
I did not invite you on this podcast for you to come in and smart this shit up, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, because there, there is an extraordinary sense, and British art has been trying, I think a lot of British art has been trying mm. to deal with this, whether it's sort of the random spasms of culture that happened in like Towie and so on, and, um, or, or even like writing like Millennium People, like mm. by J.G. Ballard, we've been trying to deal with this sense of dislocation. Mm. And now, now Ballard was writing about London, but like, a lot of these, a lot of these shows deal with what does it mean to be from, be from the fringes of somewhere. Whether that's Croydon, for example, Peep Show as well. You know, Jez, Jez is kind of a failed legend in Peep Show, I think, because mm. um, he's someone who's, or at least in the early episodes, because he wants to be a slacker, he wants to be a DJ, he tries to take advantage of the people around him. He tries to be this big, brash, larger-than-life personality, but because it's Peep Show, of course, he always fails and he's always shown to be pathetic. But it's also a show about about working in these in in. It's it's a show mm. about middle class, about lower middle class drudgery, about the boredom of living in a suburban commuter town where you're sort of just trapped in your flat. It's all about like limited expectations, shabbiness. And I feel like a kind of pale photocopy mm. of all of the trappings of American suburban life without any of the plenty that comes with being living in the country that is like the global consumer of last resort for everything. It mm. is essentially a kind of tribute act. I mean, I will say that like circumscribed and very shabby is definitely the way that I look at some of this stuff. But at the same time, also, I think that there are the best example I can give is we had this discussion recently about the sort of there's some Essex influencer lady who uh, got her oh, no. her or living room redone, and literally the whole thing is gray. Everything is gray, like gl- gray and shiny, it's gray like, and silver, like, kind gray of gray and like, silver with like, like imp- bright gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a gray sofa, gray wood parquet flooring that looks like wood, a grayer accent wall, some live laugh love shit, some picture frames that are really shiny and like like imagine a really rococo style fucking picture frame, but instead of it being gold, it's just all silver. Like and that is that is an aspirational style in mm. Britain. Whereas you show that to Americans, they're like, "What the fuck is going on? Like, mm-hmm. do these people can't, does color not exist? Is color like banned by the government?" I mm. guarantee, if you stand on the front doorstep of that house, you can see at least fifteen Ford Focus STs. I mean, like, and, and so in a way, like the point I make is not necessarily to just punch down at Essex, or maybe that's punching up. I don't know. Can you punch up at a borough? All I can tell yeah. you is that Essex should be punched occasionally. That's, that's the only <laughs> thing the, I can really... The point I'm making here is that, they're, they're, that whether or not that corresponds to like a Jungian archetype, the point here is, is more that there is a particular Look, kind of... E- like, Essex doesn't have Jungian archetypes. It just has Jungian. Um, <laughs> God damn it. Uh, there is just... There's a certain aspirational quality of being a legend or of being a sort of Taoist style influencer kind of person. Mm. But like there's the aspiration is, is aspiring to be a thing that when you take it out of the context of just being normal here kind of looks like shit. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a part of the legends personality that they kind of aspire to be something that doesn't exist. Like they aspire to be like, the P. Diddy of fucking Braintree. But the thing is that they, they can't be a P. Diddy of Braintree. Those two things are sort of like in, inherently opposed to one another. Mm. But they, and then so like the different kinds of legend, I think, have different ideas that they that they aspire to. Like, I think you're kind of your smooth operator geezer, Mark Wright. Mark Wright aspires to be like 
James Bond. Yeah. Like in his head, he is like a gentleman. The ladies love me, but I'm a bit flesh because I'm a geezer. Like he's that kind of like it's the fancy car, the fancy watch, like the kind of he's like very he thinks of himself as kind of cultured in a sort of folksy way. Mm. Um and uh, I don't know. Should we talk about the video of Mark Wright that I sent you? And Nate? We shall talk about the video of Mark Wright buying the making, damn watch, making a watch to sit. Look, also very carefully looking at all of the watches that are fifteen to twenty thousand pounds, mm. and picking one that's three points. That's three thousand seven hundred pounds. <laughs> I've bought a watch for three point seven thousand pounds. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we'd fucking say it. Yeah, I got this one for three point seven. But then the other thing to think, I think the thing to remember, I think, with, with Legends, specifically the Towie Legends, specifically these two, mm. is the extent to which they've staked the rest of their career on essentially trying to re- continue to recapture that feeling of specialness mm. and of specialness in places that are relentlessly unspecial. Yeah. I mean, um, this whole it, fucking country is relentlessly unspecial. Yeah. That's kind of like baked into the culture. Yeah. But, mm. and so that, and, the, and so, and so like, you, you can, but you can see Marge, right? You can see uh, Mark and Arge, Marge, Marge, <laughs> just the two of them together. They, they're kind of just raging against the, against the monotony of this place, but in the most consumer and flash way possible. That's mm. why their job now is to go and as like, I don't know what, like, 45 year old 50 year old men make like special appearances at bounce by the ounce in sheffield the thing is they're not even that old they're like both in their late 30s they just seem that old because of the impossibly bizarre way in which they lead their life because this is another thing about the legend right it's like the legend like wants to be cool and wants to be seen as cool but the thing is that like for that they don't actually have to be cool the legend only has to be the coolest guy their friends know like Mm. mark wright only has to be cooler than arge which is easy. How can anyone manage that? Because Arge is a simpleton. I remember there was there's like a plot line from I watched that first series of The Only Way is Essex when it came out when I was like 17. And uh, there's a plot line in that show where Arge buys his incredibly annoying girlfriend a micro pig because she wants one. Except that Arge has been like hoodwinked by the pig salesman and he has in fact just bought a piglet. So quickly they just have a full size fucking pig <laughs> in the garden of their house. Um, e- extremely, extremely normal. Um, but yeah, so there's this video of uh, Mark Wright and his simpleton friend Arge in in a watch shop, which is also run by an Essex geezer who is just like Mark Wright, but like 20 years older, um, who's just going like, oh yeah, that's a nice one. That's a nice one, Mark. And he's like, he's like that's 3,900. And he's like, can you do me a deal? Mm. And he's like, oh, I think we could there. We could I do three, seven. I, I don't, this just came flowing back to me like a Proustian reverie. Mm. Um, I, you smell the watch and then it all yes. comes back. <laughs> I remember I once briefly worked as a pub bartender before getting fired for being very bad at it. Okay, classic. And <laughs> you probably kept having Proustian reveries from the various beers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, smelled the, I smelled the skunked ale and was transported back to me- numerous house parties in rural St. Catharines, Ontario. <laughs> you know, um, what happened was, I remember there was a guy who came in, and I'll remember this man for the rest of my life until the day I die. Okay. And he said, and in the same accent that the guys in phone shop use, mm. which we'll get to. Oh, we will. He said... Hello, I would like a Covoisier and apple juice and ginger. And I said, I don't think we have Covoisier. And he said, ah, it's a great cocktail. It's called a Deals, named (laughs) after me because my name is also Deals. (laughs) 
Well, he actually said because my name is also. No, no. He said he said it in a much more sort of street way. Oh, okay. He said it in a in a much. Also, this was in like 2012, where like people like still remember. Like Nathan Barley was also much closer Mm. to the cultural imagination then Uh than than he is now. Yeah. Uh, But in and but there was also a sense, I think, of um. There was all. There was also a sense of a lot of people were still talking like Ali G, but without a hint of irony. Oh yeah. Um, did did you did you push this guy on why he was I, called I, Deals? I, yes, I did. So did he said, "I want this cocktail. It's got Cavoisier. It's called Deals. It's named after me. My name's Deals." Yeah. Okay. The implied. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> My name is Cavoisier. <laughs> <laughs> my name is, of course, Ginger Ale. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Please, Mister Cavoisier was my father. Call me Ginger and Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. So Deals then says, well, all I can get you a deal on is toilets. <laughs> Do you and, like to shit, mate? <laughs> and I will remember that exchange and I don't until the most it is memories of my family, my, my my wife, possible children, who knows. These will be my second to third last memories. I mean, I, I'm sim- similarly like, with huge swaths of my life I've forgotten because apparently they're insignificant, but you mentioned Crevoisier has reminded me of the fact that for some reason, uh, the it might have been Diageo or whatever fucking global brand distributes Crevoisier around the world, or at least in America, decided to like try to explain cognac and specifically Crevoisier's appeal to uh, French cognac grape growers by getting a projector and reel to show them the video for Buster Rhymes' past the Crevoisier. Now imagine this mm-hmm. happening in a, like a rural French fucking countryside town and uh, apparently like it went down so poorly that literally one of the growers said this makes me want to stop doing this and I've been doing it my entire life so, <laughs> needless to say we all have those Proustian reveries that just come back and I can only imagine Riley getting fired because he was insisting on serving Madeline's to the fucking bar the, the, the pub patrons no I was mm. just bad I was bad mm. at the job uh, are they just carrying a huge tray of drinks to the tea ring going like whoa, whoa. kind of I, dro- yeah. I like I, I sort of have I, I'm not very sort of coordinated I dropped the payment taker thing uh, oh, no. I said I, I had I, I just I, I wanted to I want because this was when I was working as a full-time writer mm-hmm. um, and that was like paying all my bills like it was going very well but I was also working completely by myself oh, okay uh, and so I was like damn I've spent like I'm in this country and I'm I'm in this country that I've moved to. I have a group of friends, but I don't really know anyone outside like that group of friends because I've lived here for some couple of years. I need to meet some deals, guys. I need to meet a guy who can get me a cheap toilet and bulk. You we know? should we should fucking buy a toilet off that guy just to see if he's I, still operating. Do you think Deals still has all the toilets eight years later? I don't know that kind of that. I believe that guy that he can get you a deal on a toilet. You know, like I I can I can see that as a thing. I don't know why he thought I would buy a toilet. What he thought I would do with a toilet? Maybe he thought you owned the pub and you needed a new toilet. Maybe he went and mm. destroyed your toilet, both metaphorically and physically, <laughs> yeah. and then was going to offer, like, oh, so you got a problem with uh. your toilet, mate. <laughs> a, a classic confidence <laughs> trick. Yeah. He finds people like, oh, is your toilet running? Yeah. Um, I, like well, actually, that that does that kind of fits in with a perfect like archetype of a sort of Essex guy who has like a baffling array of business interests. Like uh, recently, my mom had the windows on her house cleaned, and uh, we've used this one window cleaner for like years because we like knew his parents, and <laughs> he came round, and so my mom like chats to the guy, 
And he's, I was just going out as he came in, so I said hello to him and was reminded of, like, what an absolutely gigantic geezer this guy is. Like, re- like imagine imagine the most stereotypical geezer you can think of and then double it, and that's kind of this guy. Um, and he told my mum that he had started this, like, side hustle, apart from being a window cleaner, for extra money, where he gets rid of people's wasps' nests. Um, he has no qualifications <laughs> for getting rid of wasps, which I feel like you have to know he something just about. Sidles up to them and is like, "I'll I'll pay you fifteen pound to fuck off." They're paying me thirty quid to get rid of you. I'll give you fifteen to fuck off. How's that? I can get you a deal on a toilet. How about this? You move. You move to the other the other yard. I'll go back there. They'll pay me thirty pounds. I'll give you another. We'll give you a toilet. You build your nest in a fucking toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, would lo- I would love all of the different, just completely bird-brained business ventures that different British legends have like created over the last sort of what thirty years yeah. to just all come together in one stupid conglomerate. But so then he's telling my mum right that recently he went and got rid of a wasp nest for someone, and he got stung like fifty times, and uh, he went out to his car and he just uh, passed out from like anaphylactic shock. And uh, they had to call the paramedics and they had to, like, restart his heart, right? Because he'd had such a bad reaction to these fucking wasp stings. And then my mum goes, oh, well, I guess you're not doing the wasp nest anymore. He's like, no, I'm still doing them. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fighting each one. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you could, get, you, could get a wasp, you could get a wasp sting anytime, I figure. And it's like, but you're much more likely to receive a wasp sting. As a wasp nest remover. Hey, yeah. Well, just but, as a sort of fly-by-night, oh, see what I can do? Wasp nest remover. Yeah, just an Essex guy will remove your wasp nest at a great personal risk. Yeah, because that's legendary behavior. Yeah. This, um, is, this is a deep cut on me, but I'm actually terrified of bees. I, I managed to control mm. it, but the reason I'm terrified of bees is two reasons. Number one, because when I was three, I was told, stand still, you've got a bee on you, and I stood perfectly still, and the motherfucker still stung me. Fuck you, bee. But it was a bumblebee, so it died immediately, but still no solace. Secondly, because when I was a little kid, I was visiting my grandparents. My brother, I was probably about four, my brother had a cap gun and was sitting on my grandparents' front porch swing. And underneath the porch swing, unbeknownst to my brother, was a comically perfect wasp nest hanging from the oh, no. like, perfect oval suspended by a little stem. And what does my six-year-old brother do? He points the cap gun inadvertently down and fires it next to the wasp nest. And then he, as I remember Excellent. this happening, disappears in a cloud of wasps. <laughs> so that's what I could describe it. So yes, he survived, but he got stung like 70 I times. Had to give him 15 quid to fuck off. And if they had just gotten an Essex guy to put, convince those wasps to build their nest in a toilet somewhere, yeah. it's never would have happened. Well, it's, 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 it is a culture of kind of... Because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the, in the evolution of the culture of British wheeler dealing. Mm. And that you can... It, sort of the spiv concept, isn't it? Like the same guy who can open up his coat and sell you a stolen watch or whatever. It's different. I don't know. I think... I don't know, Miles. Do you think there's a crossover with spiv and this sort there's of like... a crossover, but it's a different thing. There is a bit of a crossover, but I, yeah, I, I do see what Riley means is there's kind of like... There is sort of like the honest tradesman wheeler dealer, but like their business isn't in any way illegal. It's just bizarre. Mm-hmm. But also, I think, again, to... To think, thinking specifically about what a, what a, le- what especially like this is the the business of a legend, of course. Mm. But the the idea of of um <clears throat> of this sort of mass of this bravado and suburban bravado and machismo that is connected to success, often in sales, is mm. something that comes. It comes. It's been coming to us from the eighties, right? And yeah. it's an attitude that you that starts in like the gentlemen's clubs in Mayfair. 
um, arranging or like Mark Thatcher, you know, just getting in the middle of deals and arranging mm. things and so on and so on and taking cuts and, and feeling like this wheeler dealer, these early hedge fund spivs, if you want to call them that. And that filters down through... Opening up my coat, oi, mate, you want an East India company? <laughs> but that, fil- that filters down, right? That filters down through... Um, through the sort of more like standard like bourge- petit bourgeois middle classes. And you can think of, if you want to think about that, the Fry and Laurie sketch where they're two uh, like office managers, two businessmen, and you never know what they do, but mm. they're always talking about Marjorie and saying, damn. Oh, mate, you want any mortgage back to derivatives? Marjorie took the client book with her when she left. Damn, Steve. That, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, it's this taking taking these sales businesses and the Wolf or Wall Street lifestyle incredibly mm. seriously. And it's been something that has just seeped through this country's class system mm. until, you know, we end on phone shop where it's the same attitude. It's the same affect. It's behaving like you think the hedge fund guy behaved in the 1980s, but applying that to the selling of a mobile phone Well, that's contract. the whole thing about the Essex man, isn't it? The guy who coined the phrase was like on the DLR and there was some guy doing some high stakes deal on a mobile phone back when that was like not a common thing. Mobile phone with like a comically large aerial. Looks like a World War II field yeah, telephone. Yeah, it turns out as he listened, he eavesdropped in this guy's conversation, he deduced that it wasn't actually some high, high flying business deal. It was him making bets on horse trading or horse racing. <laughs> so like, yeah, like the guy who's wearing a suit on the DLR yelling into a mobile phone to place bets on a horse. Mm, but take yeah. that through multiple, you know, boom and bust cycles of the British economy, economy becoming more moribund. And that's where you get to this. Yeah. Is it, that moribund? <laughs> and so this is, I mean, you know, because, you know, it's like, uh, strike me down. I'm a materialist. I look, I look at, the, I, I, when I ask myself a question about culture, I tend to look for the answer somewhere mm. in these tectonic shifts that define how we produce things. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, maybe this is a good point to start talking about phone shop. And I think, yeah, the culture of like sales bravado, I think is like one of the key things that show satirizes in the wider setting of like, just the sheer, like, what, what people do to make suburban life in Britain interesting. Like this kind of like mad, like these guys who are stuck in Sutton, which is like near Croydon. And uh, the the desperate way in which they try and create drama in their daily life, which is incredibly undramatic. Like they, all the guys who work in the phone shop talk at great length about the high street and like the people, the different kinds of people who work in the different high street shops. Like whether a certain kind of pickup line would work on a Waterstones girl or a Habitat girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and well, it's the it's it's again, it's the uh, it is the idea of if you want to look at a basic mindset, right? Mm. It is the acceptance that the world is a, it's ex- an acceptance that you're, the petty jungle that you live in is a jungle, mm. and that it is a place of no rules of uh, you know the big cats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is not a it is not a a nice place. It's a place where you have to either dazzle or dominate others, and. Mm. The thing about Britain is that it always is that Britain is a country that's incredible at taking these lofty, even if it's, you know, quite um, rotten, uh, but very big ambitions and then setting them in a pathetic way, you know, trying to be the big man of the Sutton High Street. You know, mm. it's, but trying to be the big man of the Sutton High Street is an inherently tragic situation. It's a tragic situation because... These things are incompatible because your dream of being a big man is doomed from the beginning because of what you want to be the big man of. It is it inherently it is that's why in comedy, 
the legend is always, you know, the um, the object of mock. The legend is frequently the object of mockery, right? Like again, how jazz is handled in Peep Show. I don't know. I, I my confession is that I watched the episode that Milo told me to watch, <laughs> but I struggled really hard because I had a violent physical and emotional reaction to too much legend. I just <laughs> to me because this is not you know I've only lived here two years and this is not something I'm familiar with. I know the like the sort of stereotypes that it's portraying, and I understand like you know the way it's written and the way that it's paced and everything about it being a comedy show and it being a satire. But like, God. I, cringe does there's no word in english to describe the inability of the word cringe to describe what i was feeling <laughs> watching this just like every fucking subatomic particle in my body was like reject this run from this flee this like i could not fucking tolerate it like it was mm. just it was just too much yeah i no, i can see that and yet and yet it so perfectly encapsulates what we're talking about like the petty rivalries between the guys who work in the phone shop over whether they work on contract or pay as you go and like the worst thing you can do is be demoted to selling pay as you go phone contracts mm -hmm. they're like no 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 don't do pay as you go <laughs> what is the deal with everyone trying to affect a yardy voice that was kind of weirding that's me that's a thing that's of its time yeah yeah, because that just, that, that, from an outsider perspective, that did not age well. Yeah, oh, that, though, but that's also just, it's just South London. Like, white guys from South London talk very similar talk to how like black that. people from South they London They don't fucking talk like that. I mean, I live um, in South London, but they don't talk like that. I mean, a lot, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of them do. And also, like, the other thing, right, is a lot of them did then. Yeah. It very much was, because if you think about it, right, that's also, that was just before, um, this, was, this was just before the time where, like, um, uh, uh, garage like grime had made its heyday. Garage was also big, sort of throughout the entirety of the two thousand. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I'm a, maybe, I'm, maybe a lack of experience on my part. But if I, I feel as though if I were to encounter a white guy from South London who called people blood, like he would be laughed out of the room. Oh no, no, it was totally a thing. Well, yeah. no one says blood anymore at all. Like, got I don't it. Know, okay, I don't know okay. non-white people who say it now either. But at the yeah. time, that was very much a like. Yeah, everyone said that. Yeah, that's yeah. wild to me. I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've, I, I, if I've heard it, I've only heard it in passing on the street, and it's definitely not white people well, saying. I, I think if you want to think about, if you want to think about, or at least the way I have experienced Britain, coming to know it as an outsider, so yeah. having to experience it, sort of having to experience and understand it, sort of piece by piece, not having it mm. sort of just grow up around me and having it feel natural, right? I've understood the way the way the, the the use of language breaks down here is much 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 more regional. Um, whereas in, in the states there are obviously regional differences, but they're quite macro regional differences. In in the UK, you're looking at micro regional differences. Yeah, I mean you get more of that on the East Coast in the US, which makes sense because it was settled earlier in the shit. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, the further west you go, the the bigger the chunks are, if you yeah. will. Yeah. So if so, what you're looking at, so in the UK, you're looking. What what is a South London accent to you sounds like a white guy doing a like British a literally, literally yeah I was like this this feels like I'm watching somebody like one step removed from blackface yeah I, I, I my in my my experience of the country I'm pleased to be told that I'm wrong is that it's more it's that's partly it but it crosses over heavily with regional with regionality as well like there's a much more regionalism to it. Yeah, because what you might call in scare quotes like a like a, a a black way of South London speaking or something like that is kind of it's influenced a bit by like kind of I guess uh, like uh, uh, the West Indies and like the accents that came from Jamaica and stuff like that. But it's also heavily influenced by Cockney, which is also like how white people. So they, all those things sure, kind yeah, of yeah. a lot of interplay, and so a lot yeah. of the accents that grew up are kind of similar to one another, if not completely the same. Yeah, it's much. There is much more. It, that's why it's defined more by region than anything else. 
And so it's, but to an American watching that, you're like, what the hell? Yeah. Is, why is everyone yeah. putting on this voice? This is the first time I've ever seen this show. And yeah, that was my initial reaction was just sort of like, yeah what the fuck is happening no it's much more it's much more like the the i think the humor in there is is much more it's like these are people from sutton which is like a suburban you know relatively like you know relatively compared to some some others relatively prosperous suburb just like how ali g's from stains yeah like you know? it's not it's not the hood no, it's like is, it's just a boring place to but, be from so they're they're talking they're it's more like they're talking like they're from somewhere much more interesting yeah, like they're okay. talking like they're, they're. To be honest, they're talking like they're from. They're talking like they're like from Brixton, and they like go. They have an, the kind of in, a kind of interesting life that they would think is interesting that they would want, but they're doing it from the suburbs. It would be kind of like it'd be kind of like someone from New Jersey. Um, it's like kind of almost like when someone from New Jersey would put on a heavy New York accent. <laughs> I don't know if that happens. I mean, happens. yeah. The thing about it is, is that like the, the, I get where you're coming from. I think a better example would probably be like if somebody from a relatively prosperous suburb was trying to talk like they were way more street than they actually are. Mm. And obviously, there's a certain degree of affectation because like uh, some of that's way more racialized in America than it is here. I think they're, they're like, it kind of blurs more here. But I get where you're coming from, yeah. Whereas, I mean, somebody from New Jersey, somebody from New York, like, probably just gonna sound like a fucking Guido. Yeah, that only that only got popular in the last couple of oh. years. <laughs> this guy doesn't do fucking pay as you go over yeah. here. Hey, so, like, whoa. for example, it's the same. So, like, uh, the um, so the way to like, the, the way to understand that as well, it's like uh, like Tim Westwood, for example. We're also gonna talk about uh, mm. problematic one of these problematic men. Oh my god, mm. what is the fucking deal with Tim Westwood? Like, well, to me, like all of it, the thing about it is, is that. I can't recognize the truth being portrayed in this. I can't recognize the real life example being portrayed in this. All I see is a bunch of people talking in a really annoying way. I mean, let's welcome to Britain. Yeah, let's let's round off on Tim Westwood in a bit uh, because Tim Westwood is is my is my third and final archetype. Um, I want to do I want to do a quick hit on like what is kind of almost like a kind of an offshoot of the Essex legend geezer archetype, which is uh, what what I like to call the Instagram comedian. Like, there's this guy who's like he kind of wants to be Mark Wright, but he doesn't have the pretensions to being like a classy gent that Mark Wright has, and his he worships not at the throne of like Rolexes or of like the BMW M3. He worships at the throne of banter like so this is dapper laughs yeah this is dapper laughs that's fucking right he's in a turtleneck he's apologizing to emily maitlis that's who this guy yeah, he is he was too much of he, he got too much legend and then had to apologize that's what happens if you become too much of a legend you have to ring up and apologize to emily maitlis hey stace you say you're a legend this is the guy that you basically made your tiktok joke about milo right the one we were like this is this is the, the british instagram comedian that calls up his girlfriend and he's just like you're a slag rat, 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 rat. yeah and then post i think gets like nine million likes um yeah because like the legend the legends put in a lot of effort into into wooing the uh the fittest girl in you know um sutton coldfield but then oh, yeah. uh end up just hating her <laughs> <laughs> um it's just isn't sutton coldfield like a barracks town <laughs> it's, yeah, like a- of, it's outside of birmingham no yeah i think it is a barracks yeah. town i feel like it is um anyway uh the uh because this is like really topical this week because right sometimes this thing happens where things which i'm familiar with due to where i'm from like make their way into left twitter and this one of these was recently my fault which is dave courtney which i've just like made the bridge so that now people know about dave courtney but um 
there was the video doing the rounds of the guy who put dye in his girlfriend's bath. Oh, yeah. Legendary behavior. Yeah. Because le- legends do pranks. Exactly. Because part of being a legend is, is, is imagining yourself to be like an Odyssean figure. Yeah, exactly. And so th- this is like quite, uh, he put like industrial dye stuff in the, but basically it's not really like a thing you should do as a prank because it can, you know, it can be caused quite serious reactions and stuff. Oh, it's like it- not. The legend only went and poisoned his missus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's made her infertile by pouring blue dye in her bath. Hilarious. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, pretty... I, I don't know if it can make you infertile. That just seems like the kind of... Do you know what? Neither does he. That's that's <laughs> the important thing to bear in mind. Um, and I just remember, yeah, I was doing the rounds on kind of like uh, uh, Twitter of people who aren't insane who were like, what's funny about this? And the answer is nothing. But, like, it's, like, that kind of, like, you constantly have to be engaged in larger-than-life behavior in order to be the legend. Like, you have to be engaged in some kind of banter of some sort, which could result in someone describing you as, quote-unquote, a fucking mentalist. Like, that is the most important thing to you, that whenever people talk about you, they're like, fucking hell, this guy's a fucking head case. Because mm. you're trying to be larger than your own life. Yeah, exactly. And so everything, they have to make everything into a kind of drama. Because like the other thing, with the Instagram comedian, right? They're either like doing a prank on their girlfriend or they're doing a parody of what their girlfriend would do. So they put a tea towel on their head because that's how you know they're being a woman. Girlfriends do that. Yeah. Are you either being a woman or Mohammed bin Salman? It's not entirely clear. One of the two. Um, so you're wearing this You're wearing this tea towel and you're going around. You going a like, button that says Yemen. Oh, oh, are you watching football again? Oh, you know when your girl says that, and it's like, what? Yeah, what? It's, it's. I mean, that's that's a standard comedian trope. It's it, it plays out differently based on the psychosis of where you're from. Mm. In America, it's like, ah, oh, I hate my wife. She never lets me do anything. Yeah, Don't you hate how you're because because American because American guys. We talked we talked about this with Felix Biederman years mm. ago of of different types of guy. I remember this conversation. We talked about how in America. Um, pissed guys are always being held back from fighting by their friends mm. and they're always being told what they can't do by their like wives and girlfriends yeah. and they're just sort of sitting and seething internally until eventually they get a camera and start ranting in their car. Um, oh, classic. Whereas British Doing le- the Hussein Kizvani. Yeah, British legends um, are constantly just are constantly acting out in every direction. They're pulling pranks on their wives and girlfriends. No one has ever held them yeah, back. No one has ever held them back. If anything, the world would be better if someone would yeah. hold them back. No yeah. one holds these guys back. And again, it's the same reason why, they're, why they'll try any scam, they'll try any sales technique, they'll do any pickup line, because mm. they know that it's, it's all just banter and nothing's that serious. And oh, just have enough, mate. And that's why, that's what folds itself in on this, of constant live this constant striving for something larger it's just that that something larger outside themselves that they're striving for is fucking stupid yeah you can't get cancelled from being like the british legend it's no, not possible you, you have to you have to go too far as dapper laughs did yeah but it, dapper laughs is still popular he still has like a big fan base he's like huge online still he makes like how old is he loads of money the le- legends are ageless as well i think dapper laughs is in like his early 40s dapper laughs at 60 is something i'm interested to see Oh, yeah. Dapper laughs as like an elder statesman, like grandee of the British media class. You know, Dapper laughs gets a chat show akin to Parkinson. I think the other thing, right, is, you know, you um, is, is you can't. The, the thing is, right, I, if it's Britain, you can never escape a class discussion. Yeah, you can never escape that. And 
Um, you know, I, I sort of, I think I mentioned it, mentioned it earlier that this behavior is interpreted differently based on who's doing it mm. and what they're doing with it, right? Like, you could say that the, the Empire was just a bunch of legends who went on the piss and took their ship the wrong way. Um, but anyway, so, they, so a, lot of, a lot of the portrayal of the, of the legend in and, and Britain tends to be one of a sad middle-class person who is in denial about the monotony of their own life. Or again, because mm. I, I take in this, I take this, um, this archetype in through comedy mainly. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. I take it in, and I take it in through the kind of comedy that I enjoy. That's you know, Dapper Show or Chris Morris or <laughs> Dapper Laugh Instagram page. And so I tend to only see comedy where they're portrayed as pathetic, delusional characters. But that's, but that, but that's, and that's usually used mm. to describe the pathetic delusion of like specifically middle class people who are terminally bored. Uh, mm. and, and I do don't you feel? I mean, I guess to me, in, in a sense, like the. I wasn't necessarily associating a middle class vibe with being a legend, so maybe I've got that wrong. Because to me, it seems it, the 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 extent to which like it, the the juvenile shit that gets done just doesn't. It, I don't know. It's hard for me to associate that and be like, oh, this is this person is explicitly middle class as opposed to just like yeah, because, almost classless and just being yeah. a, a British dumbass. They are middle class, <laughs> but the the aesthetics of it are kind of working class because it's like yeah. it goes back to a thing we've talked about on a previous on the suburbia episode with Hussein about like the the British guy who owns four white Range Rovers and the number plates when you park them next to each other to say working class <laughs> like that is like it's like that kind of guy like he's they, that guy's kid. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. like they're middle class, but it's like uh, they aspire to this kind of like hard man yeah. working class aesthetic because like their grandparents were working like the, class. The young Tory personal trainer guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the so, young Tory personal trainer. Alleged, is a so a, leg- a legend is frequently the kid of the guy with four Range Rovers with the lumber plates to spell out working class, and then grows up if he is successful in enough legendary shit to then have four of his own Range Rovers that say working class and give birth to a legend of his own. Mm. It is because it is because legendary legendariness in this case it's all about it is all about moving beyond something and moving outside of something and it's a rejection of what is imagined to be a quite stuffy prim middle class existence. Okay, you're listening to Radio Four, <laughs> but how does this explain Tim Westwood then? Because I am struggling to fucking grasp that guy. Tim oh, Westwood, yes. new fucking guy, new archetype. Let's do it. The final of my like canonical legend archetypes, the wannabe gangster. Um, so we're taking we're taking Tim Westwood for this one, but this is not a wannabe gangster in the Dave Courtney sense. In the Ali G. This sense. is wannabe gangster in the Ali G. Sense. Ali exactly. G. is portrayed. Ali G. Is additionally don't forget is portrayed as coming from Staines, which is a very like nice mm. like suburban neighborhood next to Slough. Next to Slough, and like he's got he lives in a nice home with his grandmother and so on and so on. He's not middle class in the sense of like owning property or anything. He's like you know probably his like grandmother owns her house or what have you. But he is still like has a pretty comfortable life, and he's yeah. just sort of throwing it. He's trying to throw it away to experience, to impress people, and experience rawness. But he's too much of a coward ultimately to do so. Yeah, the wannabe gangster, right? This we're talking here, white boy from the home counties who has decided to attempt to become a roadman. Their Vauxhall course has a bathtub taped to the front, and it's so low it's scraping over a speed bump. Right, like this is this is the look that we're going for here. Um, their dad may or may not own four Range Rovers that say "Working Class" on the back. It's not necessary, but it really can go either way. There's sort of there's kind of like there's two tiers I think of the wannabe gangster. There's the ones who go out full hardcore and are driving some kind of like uh, modded out Japanese car, and then there's the ones who are like. 
they're driving like a Ford Focus ST, which they have got like a private number plate on, which they which probably cost them twenty five thousand pounds. But they talk in like a fake like London patois, and they wear like full tracksuits with a cap and a little man bag. Mm-hmm. See, but the thing is, right? What puts me, what this puts me in mind of is that you know you could you could talk about Simon Mann in much the same way. Mm. You know, is he's not imitating the same the same um, signifiers. He's not taking on the same. Sort of frequently working class and frequently black signifiers. Mm. He's taking on the signifiers of like a para army man and so on. And again, trying mm. to live this very exciting life. And co- and also, don't forget, unable to stop bragging about how exciting his life is in ways yeah. that fuck him up. But he is the same. He's the same thing. It Etonian old money um, mm. leaves his life for a great adventure, and because he has those resources behind him. He is able to have. He's able to have his great adventure. He doesn't have to be the biggest man on the on on the Sutton High Street. He, however, because of his own inherent stupidity, the legend <laughs> can never succeed, no matter how many resources he has at his disposal. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that is a fair a fair characterization of this as like a personality type, right? But I have to say though, it, if before anything else, you must understand this, listener, if you are not familiar yet with this archetype. Tim Westwood is old as fuck. Like, he is 62 years old. He, he, that's our example of an old legend. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily look that young. He has most of his hair, but you can tell this is not a young guy. And to me watching Pimp My Ride UK, I think the thing that weirded me out so much is that I was an unironic fan of Pimp My Ride in America when it was a new show when I was like 16, 17 years old. And I, I know the show's tropes pretty well. I liked Exhibit's music before he even became the host of that show. Mm. But fundamentally, although Exhibit is putting on a stage persona, it is still pretty close to who he is in real life. I cannot decipher the complete insanity of a guy who literally looks like, you know, if you took off the enormously baggy Letterman's jacket that he's wearing for some reason and instead put him in like a flat cap and a Mm. vest and a sweater would not look out of place. He looks like John Rentoul. He yeah, he's wearing yeah. like jinkos. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Nothing in the show makes any sense to me because all of it seems like multiple different refractions in a simulacrum of the American show. And none of it, it looks like the American show is over the top, but it's more or less meant to be taken at face value as like dumb entertainment. This show, I if you told me this was an elaborate prank to make fun of like Americans were like, ha, what if we made a British version of Pit My Right as a sketch for Saturday Night Live? It would look like this. Like one of those tweets like, British people are like, Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I, I mean, something I will say about Westwood, right, is that the image that he's portraying is at this point absolutely the person he really is. He has forgotten how to be a normal person. Mm. Like, just a bit of background on Westwood. Again, Wikipedia. Timothy William Westwood, born on the 3rd of October 1957, is a British DJ and presenter of radio and television. He is often referred to by other DJs and artists appearing on his show simply as Westwood. He presented the MTV UK show Pimp My Ride UK. He is the son of Bill Westwood, former Anglican Bishop of Peterborough. <laughs> Westwood grew up around East Anglia, in- attending the independent Norwich School before attending a local comprehensive. He is a private schoolboy who is the son of a bishop. But... He has become the big dog. Yo, dog, your car. It's messed up, dog. We've got to pimp that ride, my brother. Your Westwood is so good. Thank you. I've been doing it for... That is genuinely an impression I've been doing since school. You have two... You have two 
genuinely perfect impressions and it's westwood and partridge two wolves that dwell within you <laughs> the two wolves that dwell in all of us to some extent now can we hear what would happen if westwood called into partridge's show uh tim who invented the skip listen dog i don't know who invented the skip here's what i'll tell you brother i invented the big dog no, who invented the skip <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's good. I, uh, uh, that's good impressions. Uh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Westwood lives his life in this very, like, because he used to present the show on Radio 1 Extra that Charlie Sloth now presents. And Charlie Sloth is, again, just exactly like Westwood, like a big white guy, but who has this, like, absurd, like, kind of street persona. Um, and, like, yeah, that's, I think it was Westwood who invented the idea of just constantly playing explosion and breaking glass sound effects. And like alarms. Oh, so Alice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the best comparison I can make to this is maybe a slightly old reference, but uh, watching Tim Westwood on this show and you telling me this is just how he is mm. makes me feel like the whole setup for the movie Office Space, in which the main character was hypnotized, but the hypnotist dies in the middle of the session and he never gets brought out of hypnosis so he's just basically has an unfiltered view of life and it just says what he's thinking to people like mm. it's like that concept of tim westwood was doing a skit as midlife crisis dad who decides to become a street man but then something snapped in his brain and he can't come out of that impression mm. and that's just who he is now if you told yeah, me that was his origin presenting story, a show on mtv if you told me that was his origin story i would believe it more than i can watch him and be like this guy is not taking the piss like I would imagine, like in my mind, I think of Tim Westwood as like he does this, and then he literally talks like Neville Chamberlain. So the fact that this is how he fucking talks, like this is who he is, really blowing my mind right now. Wait, fuck! There's a story about Westwood. I can't remember where I heard this, but it was I'm 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 almost a hundred percent certain this was Westwood. Uh, that there was a a show somewhere like a music festival, and Westwood was doing a DJ set, and then he just shouted out in the middle of his set. Yo, I want you to put your hands up if you got a dirty pussy. <laughs> just a man who must have been in his 50s at this point. <laughs> just uh, just being normal. But yeah, so this episode of Pimp My Ride UK that we watched, uh, there's a guy who I think is a failing actor. He said he was on EastEnders. He's on EastEnders. He was on EastEnders oh. at the time. He was playing like a, like a minor minor role. Yeah, yeah, he had a walk-on role on EastEnders. That's basically... You know, that's yeah. by, might as well be Matthew McConaughey at that a point. A walk-on role in EastEnders in 2004 is probably the equivalent to like a secondary character on the crown now of course well the thing about yeah. it is that this guy who owns this shitty suzuki is the most unproblematic british guy you've ever met in your life based anglo like, vibes he's just he's just he like he is a suzuki loving brighton himbo and there's nothing wrong with him there's nothing wrong with him like he absolutely mm. is just like he's he's the most unproblematic british person i've ever met in my life and yet he gets a car from tim westwood that the it looks like if we put a template on our Discord and told our fans to design an anime car. Yeah, which is weird because at no point does the guy say anything about liking anime or Japanese culture. Oh, no, 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 he no, no, he owns does. a Japanese car. He does yeah. say he loves Japanese culture. And stuff oh, like does that. he say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, no, he goes, gets a little bit of Japanese writing on one of the panels that falls off that Tim Westwood then just basically exaggerates across the entire car but it it look it has the, the car look. has cherry blossom well, no, on it it's it that has, level of like it, extreme it has the look of a hand-drawn newgrounds dating simulator but on a car 
Oh, yeah. Remember those. Yeah. yeah, it basically was like they couldn't get the, the rights to any legitimate manga images to put on the car, so they just went on DeviantArt. Like, that's what it winds up looking like. Why does this woman have four huge jizzing dicks? <laughs> um, yeah, well, there's, there's so many just, like, bizarre... I mean, I, I think some of these are just, like, straight lifted from the American version of the show, but the, the fact that they put... They put a video camera in the dashboard with a screen so that he can quote the unquote, car YouTube guy practice his lines. Yeah, he was he was the archetype for the car YouTube guy. I, I want to know. So basically, the, the what happens with this car is it's a terrible car, and they keep talking about you're never gonna get an acting gig if you show up and look into a rehearsal in this car. Yeah, it's it's like, like, <laughs> this is like Jörg van der Klerk, acting <laughs> agent. <laughs> Hey, you're never going to get an acting gig in this piece of shit, huh? <laughs> you got to buy yourself a Toyota Hilux. Try this Antonov. Yeah. <laughs> Just um, be careful for birds. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, he's basically, you're never going to get an acting gig in this. Ta- if you keep, sh- this, this car is doing nothing for your acting career. <laughs> you, you, keep yeah. doing, you should do the oh. accent from before, Riley. You were drifting into like Forrest Whitaker in The Last King of Scotland. <laughs> I was I will loving not it. Be, I will not <clears> drift. <clears throat> Um, you, un- unlike this guy with this Japanese car. So uh, the uh, what we get is yeah he um he uh, he says it, it, this car is doing no favors for your acting career and on the whose car has ever done them favor mm-hmm. like did uh, unless you're talking about the cars from the movie Cars no one's gotten an acting career on the basis of being a car and I'm pretty sure yeah. those are animated. They should have given him the car from the movie Cars. Yeah, they should have given, the, given him the bones from the show <laughs> Bones. That's um, right. So no, he, oh, That uh, would be awesome. If Pimp My Ride UK was still going, we could apply it with my car and say that we just loved the show Bones <laughs> and just see <laughs> just see what they so did. He would like get the guy who plays like Hodgins or whatever, one of the <clears> secondary <throat> characters in Bones to do, because what he does. The military know. guy. So he gets Basically, so he has this car, and he says, it's doing nothing for your acting, and we know you love Japanese culture. And so they basically just take those two things in mind, then spin it off into a wild automotive phantasmagoria, the likes of which Marinetti could only have dreamed. I mean, yeah, if the car had just been solid gloss black, and they'd done the interior stuff, it actually would have been kind of cool. It's a shitty Suzuki, Suzuki hatchback, but whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not that bad. You know... The interior, bright red, kind of weird. Yeah. Some of the also, they do nothing to the engine. Yeah. Like, cars, that is, they are leaving that fucking so that's, one that's liter a, in place. That's a Pimp My Ride classic, That is, though. yeah, yeah. The car yeah. is still a piece of shit, but it looks nice. Um, but they slap on a bunch of vinyl graphics on it to basically make the car anime. And it, as Milo said previously, or alluded to previously, it, 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 it resembles Tim Westwood's jeans in the sense that this is basically the car vinyl decal version of the embroidered art on a pair of Jinkos. Like, it's garbage and they mount a projector in the car so he can watch movies by pressing a button that flips the hood of his car up to be a projector screen so basically he can watch movies in his car he's like mom now i don't have any reason to ever leave my car it's like (laughs) the first dream in a different light i can film myself in my car i can watch my movie of me filming myself fake taxi in my car um i have uh, an- another legend, Danny Dyer's handprint in the back of my car. But oh yeah, they roped to- in Danny Dyer to give a fucking handprint. Doesn't get to meet Danny Dyer, no. but does drive around with Danny Dyer's handprint in like plaster mounted in the back in the of back his fucking car. Danny Dyer tells him, you know, keep it up. Drama school, it's a mugs game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nice one, brother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, 
I can't believe you haven't watched Human Traffic for this yet. The bit that, well, the bit that still gets me right about the fucking, the, the camera that they mount in the dashboard for him to practice his lines, which has a screen right next to it for him to watch as he's, because the idea is that like, oh, now you can like see yourself in your car while you're practicing your lines. It's like, you realize that like a car has like multiple mirrors in it, right? Like that is like a, that's like a famous basic feature of every vehicle. But weirdly that, that was the part of the car that actually made the most sense to me. I was like, as I was watching, I was like, eh, like that, okay. That's a sensible thing to throw in there, you know, just mm. I'm going at it full on dad vibes. I was like, yeah, practical, makes sense. He's an actor. The grooming yeah. kit, okay, maybe a little bit janky, but whatever. But the, You're making your tapes ranting about the grooming gangs. But but the 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 what's it called? The the projector to watch movies in your car. Mm. Like you've just installed a really nice stereo unit that has a big screen on it. Surely wouldn't you just watch a movie on that versus watching a movie? Because you could that way a passenger could watch a movie. But none of that's legendary. Yeah, I'm just I'm grappling with the idea that rather than watch it on your screen while you're going places or go to a movie theater or watch it at home, you're going to park your car, flip the hood up, watch a movie and also watching mm. it in the, the, the car that is made out of anime. You like, haven't you haven't understood the British legend yet in that case, because yeah. that's the point. The point is, oh, he's got a movie theater in his car. That's mental. <laughs> Yeah, he's not. The, yeah, the guys from Indiana who love the British legend. Yeah. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I can't do accents. I was this guy's got a movie theater in his car. Oh, Man, that's that, so whoa. mental! I've never seen anything like it here in the home counties. This geezer is off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> what? That must be the only one in all of Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I was set up not to like this guy because we're from East Sussex and he's from West Sussex. But you know what? After I saw that car movie theater, he's an all right bloke. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah. Honestly, man. If you can impress Andrew Tate with your car, you can impress anyone. That's right. Listen, I don't want to hear about your dodgy Suzuki with your car movie theater. If you can take me on a good night out in Brighton, I will pay for it. If not, I will punch you, dog. <laughs> no, clearly the logical continuation of the Andrew Tate story with that is that if he doesn't have a good night out in Brighton, Andrew Tate gets to fucking do Street Fighter 2 style beat up his car, just like oh, yeah. roundhouse kicking the shit out of a Suzuki. One thing I think it's important to mention before we stop is that like, Tim Westwood like, is has some pretty serious allegations against him as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. He's been he's been accused of things of a. Uh, he's been accused. He has been accused of, of of sexual impropriety. I think. Oh, Not- surely no British radio DJ has ever had a problem with that before. Yeah. No. Uh, so I think it, it it also you should we like we should also mention that this this is probably not a nice or benign person. Well, no, that's no. I mean, that's that's important to point out, though, is that like a lot of this stuff is sort of predicated on kind of being a dick to people, and it's like, well, if you your attitude is just kind of being a dick to people, it doesn't surprise me that then your approach to like, you know, sex and sexuality would also be being kind of a dick to people. Well, it's the the thing to under I think the 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 real thing here, right? Also, is the is the is the is the, un, is the, the relationship between portrayals of certain archetypes, especially like archetypes of archetypes of you know dudes who play by their own rules or whatever tends to mm. be one that's in dialogue with how people really are. And so you can it so the the le- the legend archetype as it has existed in British fiction and especially television and reality TV mm. and uh, there's more reality TV to talk about by the way including like weird shows that capitalize on this like Sunsex and Suspicious Parents. But these these archetypes then get into dialogue with the real world and all of all of these things this outrageous mental behavior or whatever on when it's in the 
when it's written and on TV mm. is you know it's funny. But then as as these but these things they're not saying that people watch it and then start doing crimes, but rather that these things reflect a tendency. Not Wayne crimes. No, no Wayne, not Wayne crimes. So this is how you wind <laughs> up then using industrial dye in your girlfriend's bath and making her infertile by mistake. Yeah, and it's and so it's that this <laughs> we do not know that that happened. Yeah. But right, but that this that that this tendency is something that is inescapable in this country at least, and that the way it's portrayed tends to elide how quite pernicious and cruel it actually is when it's mm. executed in real life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a fair summary. And I mean, I, I definitely think that uh the fundamental premise to me is that I would never want to be around a legend in real life. You know? Just as I would never want to. Too fucking late, sunshine. (laughs) 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 Oi, oi! Let's get some fucking pints in. Well, before uh, do we have? Do we go for a few more minutes? I want to ask a couple more things about legends. (laughs) (laughs) Nate Nate gets into his bath after this episode, thinking, (laughs) thinking, oh, well, I'm glad all that legend stuff is over. Oh, oh no. Oh no. Ivan fucking turned blue by those goddamn legends. Mm-hmm. Oh no, the puckish Milo has turned me blue. <laughs> I hate to see that. Um yeah, but like if you if you ever go to Amsterdam, you'll always oh, see legends. Oh yeah. You'll oh, see a yeah. lot. I once saw a guy Look at this guy. He's got a tea towel on his head, impersonating his girlfriend. <laughs> Hilarious. I've got polish on my face. I should make friends with him. <laughs> I'm also impersonating my girlfriend. Um Girlfriend who loves doing blackfish. She loves doing blackfish. That's right. So- and she loves honkball. <laughs> hey, you guys, you're you're from, you're from England. I bet you never seen a honkball game before. You just heard the song. Listen, there's four honks, okay? <laughs> and you've got a bat that you used to honk the ball. I'm just imagining the Essex legends hearing this guy. He's like, "Is this bloke talking about sex things? Is he talking about a famous British tune, honkball class? <laughs> Yeah, but I remember once seeing in Amsterdam, I was like going to dinner, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I I looked Classic over, I, I saw a guy, uh, and with another group of guys. They were all British. They were all in their forties, and they were all just, being dudes, just bald as shit, mm-hmm. just incredibly bald. Clearly having the stag party for someone's third marriage. Yeah, one one of Dave Courtney's geezers was having a stag party. He was there with his four hundred and ninety nine friends, and I remember seeing like there was like the, all but one of the party were sort of looking in bafflement at a barge that was in the middle of a large canal, mm-hmm. um, and the police were there also looking in bafflement at this this large barge, and one of the guys was on it, having clearly like jumped from a large bridge onto the barge, and he was he seemed like he was. He was hurt, but he was like fine, like he was alive and he wasn't like paralyzed. And it was just everyone was just trying to figure out what to do with this monumentally stupid guy whose decision to try to impress his friends for basically no reason has suddenly ruined everything for everyone, including himself. Yeah, but they'll remember that so fondly. It was legendary, mate. Do you remember when he jumped onto that barge and hurt his leg? Classic <laughs> fucking nutter. Um, I mean, this. I, f- I think for me, that kind of thing is like perfectly summed up by there used to be an amazing Twitter account. I don't know if it still exists called Year Nine Banter, which just reposted like the kind of like legend shit that you thought was really cool when you were 14. And uh, there's that infamous meme, which I'm sure you've all seen, where it's like these two British teenagers who are incredibly thin, just standing in the kitchen of like a shitty looking house, pointing at their friend 
who is lying on the floor and is doing like finger guns. And then they, they, the, 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 the caption that they've posted it with is, we dared Dean to lie on the floor and he just did it. Fucking mentalist. There it is. There it is. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this uh, fifth edition of uh, Britonology. If you're listening to this, you're already on the Patreon. So I don't know, buy a shirt or something. Thank you so much for listening once again. We really appreciate your patronage. Uh, we will continue to do these episodes so long as this bizarre island continues to fascinate and horrify us. Thank <laughs> Until you, Riley. Until it sinks into yeah. the sea and only Birmingham exists. Exactly. That's a horrible future. Ozzy Osbourne's water world. <laughs> that will actually happen. Can I plug my podcast? Yeah, please, Riley. Plug yeah. your podcast. Uh, so I also host a show. It's on this same Patreon. Uh, it's called the Boney Island Whitefish. Mm. <laughs> Myself and Bunta Vista's Andrew Law break down every episode of Riley. Shut up. Oh. Why do we do what I'm talking about the show happens. bones? Is it? Talking about bones. I've got plenty of bones. Oh, I love bones. I've got a lot more bones than I have appendixes. Um <laughs> Jesus Christ. Everyone does. <laughs> but I at a slightly higher ratio than most. God damn it. Listen, yeah, so listen to the Boney Island Whitefish. It's uh, a clean it's, sheet. You can find it. You can find it on this Patreon. And if you're listening to this, you've probably listened to it. Yeah, there but you listen, go. Listen to it again. Just see uh, if you missed anything. Listen to it often. Yeah. Listen to it. Oh, to give another listen. Maybe listen to it on half speed. Mm, yeah. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe print out a, uh, a a transcript of the Boney Island Whitefish and read it to yourself in this voice. Uh, why would you need to? <laughs> what have you had for breakfast this morning? Hello. Good morning. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we will join you both with our next Britonology whenever that happens, as join well you as both, both of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on the next Trash Future bonus episode as well. So until then, bye. Later. <laughs>